This week on KPBS Roundtable, we take a look at the state of the U.S. immigration system and the increased role the San Diego-Tijuana border region is playing in it. The numbers have skyrocketed, you know, the last several years, uh, really since 2019. All that as a welcome center for migrants closes its doors. We take a look at what that means for asylum seekers arriving in the area. It looks like it's just going to go back to what it was before, which would be street releases. They're going to be released in transit centers in San Isidro and North County, most likely. Plus other top stories from the week on this week's Roundup. That's ahead on KPBS Roundtable. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year, we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, We've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. Twenty twenty three ended with a record number of migrant encounters along the US Mexico border for the month of December. It capped another year of asylum seekers from across the globe navigating an overwhelmed immigration system in the United States. Meanwhile, a bipartisan effort to pass immigration reform failed earlier this month. And closer to home here in the San Diego-Tijuana border region, a local migrant shelter is closing its doors this week, leaving a hole in services for asylum seekers in the region. Here to help us break it all down, I'm joined now by KPBS investigative border reporter Gustavo Solis, and Elliot Spaggett, San Diego correspondent and U.S. immigration team lead with the Associated Press. I want to welcome you both back here to Roundtable. And Gustavo, this week, a local migrant welcome center is closing its doors, citing a lack of funding. Tell us about what's been happening there and the role that it's been playing since it opened last fall. It is not very surprising. I think people knew that the shelter was going to close when it did. And, And there's a lot of frustration in the community about that. Uh, the county spent $6 million on this shelter and, you know, it came and went and there's no real long-term, there's really nothing to show for it in the long-term. Now, while it was open, it did a lot of good. Something like 70,000, 80,000 migrants went through there. And it was a place where, um, we've talked about this before, right? The migrants, asylum seekers who are out in Hakumba in the between the two border walls of San Isidro, once they get processed to, through Customs and Border Protection, they ended up at that shelter. And it was at that shelter where they would get some food, they'd get access to Wi-Fi uh, to make travel arrangements, and something like 98% of them would leave San Diego and reach their you know, final destination in the U.S., whether it be L.A., San Francisco, New York, Chicago, whatever have you. But closing that center means that those people will now have nowhere to go and it looks like it's just going to go back to what it was before, which would be street releases. They're going to be released in 
transit centers in San Isidro and North County, most likely. I don't know if you've heard anything other than that. Correct. Yeah. That's that's the way it was. I think uh, it started in September mm-hmm. when the two big shelters in San Diego, Jewish Family Service and uh, Catholic Charities, said they were full, and they they were taking they were still able to take all the families, but the single adults were getting released. They were um, temporarily now at this county shelter, and now they'll be back in the streets and having to find their way to the airport, to the bus stations, and and, and I'm sure some NGOs will be, some organizations will be out there trying to help just. But without any without any government support. Yeah, so we're kind of back to where we started because those two other shelters are still at capacity; they're still full. Mm. And you guys touched on it before, but I think we have uh, we heard stories about before Border Patrol would just do these drops at pub, you know, at like bus stops and train centers. So was this shelter sort of put in place as an emergency sort of stopgap to kind of stop that from happening and give them more services to kind of go to these other places that you mentioned, Gustavo? I mean, that's how I viewed it as a, like a direct response to this, right? Because nobody wanted the street releases. They look chaotic. They put a lot of pressure on local communities. Down in San Isidro and I know Oceanside, all of the North County mayors were kind of up in arms about this. It's not safe for the migrants themselves to just be out in the public. There's no you know, restrooms, shelter, uh, electricity. So it was just a poor situation that neither the migrants nor the communities wanted. And this shelter was meant to be a response to that. And, and it wasn't a shelter. It wasn't a sh- an overnight shelter. Sorry, yeah, I should call it a, a wel- migrant welcome center is the official name of it. I see. Okay. So Elliot, you know, some of your recent reporting, you wrote about, you know, the number of migrant arrivals, particularly the record highs in December. You quoted a U.S. Customs and Border Patrol official saying it was unprecedented. You know, there was like more than 10,000 illegal crossings certain days that month. Can you put that into perspective for us? I mean, how unusual are those numbers, you know, for an ordinary December or even overall in 2023? It's uh, the numbers have skyrocketed, you know, the last several years, uh, really since 2019. I think in 2017, it was the the number of arrests for crossing the border illegally from Mexico were about, I want to say 300,000, maybe it was 400, 300,000. Those were the lowest since the early 1970s. And now we're, you know, the last two years have been above 2 million uh, in each of the last two years. So yeah, some days over 10,000, which is uh, is just uh, pretty extraordinary. So uh, the the numbers that you know it would it dropped. I don't know if you remember back when uh, the COVID related uh, asylum restrictions expired. Right. Some new restriction limits went into effect. People were kind of like, well, what's this going to look like? It dropped um, like 40 percent, I believe, in June from May when that when that change happened and then it just climbed five in the next six months to this record high as you mentioned 250,000 in December and then it dropped again uh, in January about 50% in half tell us about the well, January numbers like what, what's behind that yeah um you know it i i'm not going to read too much into it cuz it's one month and things go up and down but apparently they are staying low in February uh the the uh in San Diego for example I was told by the Mexican officials who get their the data directly from CBP that the it went from there were like 1200 up to 1200 a day crossing in Hakumba in December and it dropped to like 250 or something. So, you know, seasonal factors that you know Christmas, holidays that, that usually the numbers will drop around that time. Another big que- uh, issue in the C- CBP has made a big big deal out of this is uh, more uh, cooperation from the Mexican authorities 
So so they their immigration agency said they ran out of money in early December. Uh, it got, got, raised a lot of alarms in Washington. Secretary Blinken and Mayorkas flew to Mexico City the last week of December and to address this. And, and around that time, Mexico started resuming deportations, um, doing, you know, uh, patrolling the freight trains as they come up through Mexico. So probably those two things, you know, Mexico's more inf- enforcement and the seasonal declines. And I believe like even the, there was a Mexican checkpoint put in place near the Hakumba. Yeah, I, I haven't been out there, but I saw. I don't uh, know. Have you? No, I've seen pictures. I, I've never seen anything like that before. On the I haven't. Side it looked it. really striking because in Hakumba, it's like uh, I have been to where the the gap where people cross the border there. Um, There's you know, hundreds there. of people a day. There's nothing there. The the wall you know goes out to a. It goes. It reaches a certain point where where it runs into a mountain, and and you could really. It's very easy to get around. You just walk around it. It's just very, very easy. There's no, there's nothing stopping kids or older people from from getting across. So it's in the, but it's in the middle of it. Looks like it's in the middle of a ranch, like a very remote ranch, and that's where the Mexican authorities set up this uh, checkpoint. Yeah, just like tents. It looks like almost like a like a festival type tents that you would see there. And um, has that had an impact on the Hakumba crossings? There? I would imagine just at least a little bit. But as Elliot said, it's a lot of factors, right? Like seasonal. Trends, people don't like to travel as much during the holidays. I, I imagine weather had something to do with it. It's been really cold, really rainy, which makes it really daunting and, and difficult and just frankly dangerous to cross at that time. Factored in with Mexico really trying to get on it now uh, as a result of pressure from the U.S. So yeah, I think a whole bunch of issues. And Hakumba, you know, the areas around, we're talking about this desert community in Hakumba Hot Springs and thereabouts. It really was a major arrival point for the San Diego region, would you say, most of last year or several months of last year? But do you expect that to continue or kind of wait and see? I don't know if – is there a reason to expect it to go down, right? I mean, a lot of if, – if you look at the push factors of why migrants are coming, I don't think those have changed significantly. So I don't, I don't see it changing. And the way – at least my understanding of, of migration is once one migration route is established, people tend to kind of use it, right? People are communicating to friends back home. They're on WhatsApp groups talking about their journey. So I feel like once you establish a route, it's very difficult to change it or divert it without a big, big effort. But I, I, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, I think um, that's right. Uh, I, I, you know, the, the, the immigration is going to continue. Migration is going to continue. Whether they cross in Hakumba or Campo or El Cajon, um, I don't think any of us know how the smugglers decide those things. Uh, Hakumba was the first time I noticed it was in May, right before the pandemic uh, restrictions, Title 42 lifted, and it was actually a fair amount from Uzbekistan and Turkey, uh, and then Colombia. There were about 700 people out there at any given time, just camped out there. And the, it's a very striking place because there's just nothing. It is off the interstate. It's very close to I-8, but it, but it really is remote. And I've never seen any crossing like it, really. And they're right now, you know, largely Chinese who, who come through that area. Uh, and Turkey is Turks. And it's very few Mexicans, or at least that I've seen. Yeah, and I think both of you have kind of spoken about this, just the changing face of migration. Gustavo, you talked about, you know, historically it was more like Mexican men. And that's, you know, that's transitioned to... People from all of you mentioned Uzbekistan, all over. Gustavo, do you see that trend continuing? Well, I think so. And and you're right. I mean, I, I, I think I've brought this up before, but I think it's one of my 
few immigration fun facts when you look at historical <laughs> stats, right? That OTM category where migration, it used to be like apprehended people were either Mexicans or OTM, which was other than Mexican. Uh, that's how common yeah. that group was. Yeah, we've seen, I mean, we continue to see other nationalities. I know in Tijuana, they count them. I, do you know what the number is? Like 180 well, something different Yeah, more than 100. Oh, gosh, I have them here on my phone. But yeah, like in Tijuana, the airport, um, over 100 nationalities in the last three months of the year. And, and, and also, you know, they cross the border. The, what's interesting is San Diego, for some reason, has drawn a lot of these Eastern Hemisphere countries, San Diego and, and Arizona, whereas I think, you know, Texas is, you see more Venezuelans and, and, and Mexicans, traditional Central Americans, the traditional nationalities. And I, I don't know why that is, but the numbers, I don't remember them offhand, but uh, Gustavo mentioned that Border Patrol used to have Mexicans and other than Mexicans, OTMs. They do still have an other category that they have, but it's it's after about 20 other nationalities. Yeah. And it's and that that category, the other category is one of the largest in the San Diego sector. I believe it's the third largest. So we're talking countries that are not even in the top twenty. And Elliot, I think you also have mentioned, you know, with this increase in migrant arrivals, you note that San Diego is becoming a busier area for those arrivals. I think the San Diego sector is now the third busiest. I think you said it's it's higher than it has been in past years. Can you talk more about that? Yeah, I'm trying to remember off the top. The numbers come out every month, and I, I had to, I usually memorize them, but uh, and I don't recall the January numbers offhand. But I do remember San Diego was third, uh, just be, uh, behind Tucson, uh, which was the has been the busiest for much of the last you know six months or so, and Del Rio is as another. These are the nine different regions corridors in the the, the Mexican border. Del Rio is uh, includes Eagle Pass, Texas, and that's where. Texas Governor Greg Abbott has been really uh, amping things up and, and you know, putting troops. He, he's preventing f- uh, federal agents from, from even reaching the border in the, in the town of Eagle Pass. Um, so, so those two areas, Tucson um, and Eagle Pass, Del Rio, are, are ahead of San Diego. San Diego has always been a little bit, never the quietest, but much quieter. Right now, it's busier than Rio Grande Valley and in the southern tip of Texas, which has been the busiest for you know over a decade. And again, these are, like I was saying earlier, these are things that are hard for us to understand. I mean, it's the mm-hmm. smugglers deciding which is the, the, the most economic, who they have to pay off the least, what's the you know, easiest, all kinds of calculations that we'll never, we'll never really know. So I, I do think that's pretty newsworthy because the whole time I've been an immigration reporter, like San Diego hasn't really been top of the list. No. And you get questions like, how crazy is the border? And my answer was always like, well, it's not like Texas. And so just to be clear, it's not just the increase of, of you know, migrant arrivals that we've seen in the last couple of years, but the San Diego region has a greater share of arrivals exactly. compared to other parts of the U.S.-Mexican border, right? Just to be yeah, clear. I think the numbers were yeah the numbers were down from January from December, but they dropped even sharper. I think in Del Rio sector it was, I want to say seventy five percent drop. It was a lesser percentage drop in San Diego, but it did fall. The Venezuelans dropped ninety one percent in January from December. So for some reasons, Venezuelans are, are, are were not did not cross that much in January. Mm-hmm. I don't know. What we look at is we look at how many people are crossing from Colombia to Panama through the Darien Gap, mm-hmm. how many people are crossing through Honduras, because those are all people that are coming up to the United States. They want to, at least. And those numbers went up in January. So that's from those crossing in Panama. So 
I, that that makes me think this isn't going to last. This this drop isn't going to last too long. It might speak a little bit to maybe Mexican enforcement, right? They're getting maybe, to Mexico, yeah. not getting there. But I don't, I don't expect Mexico to sustain that level of enforcement Exa- very no, long. They, I don't they think really many do. People do. They don't have the money. When Roundtable returns, we continue our conversation on migration and reflect on the last few years and what it's brought to the San Diego-Tijuana border region. Feels like we're just in a situation of a constant like crisis or just ready, like all hands on deck. It's like one emergency after another after another, and there's no real time to breathe. That's coming up next on Roundtable. Hello, podcast listener. Full disclosure, I'm going to make some assumptions about you. This probably isn't the only podcast you enjoy. Blink if I'm right. (laughs) It's probably not the only thing you watch or listen to on KPBS either. If I'm right about that, then I'm guessing you make it a point to check in on a regular basis to see what's new, take in the latest and greatest, and then you go back to your daily life until we happily come together again. We're sort of like a virtual buffet. When you're hungry for information and entertainment, you go to KPBS and want to eat, uh, consume all you can, right? Well, you should know that when you become a member of KPBS, you're keeping the entire TV, radio, and online trays full of fresh ideas, like the tasty podcast you're enjoying right now. Help feed your appetite for KPBS. Become a member today. Just go to kpbs.org, click the blue Give Now button, and make a donation. Thank you. You're listening to KPBS Roundtable. Today, we're talking about the state of the U.S. immigration system and the increased role the San Diego-Tijuana border region is playing in it. My guests are Elliot Spaggett from the Associated Press and KPBS's Gustavo Solis. Now, Gustavo, you've done, you know, we've talked a little bit about technology and the role that that's kind of plays here. Mm-hmm. You've done a lot of reporting on the CBP-1 app, which is a technology on the, the government side to handle asylum seekers. You've reported not only on the rollout of the technology and some of the bumps there, some of the problems that that you found, but also its impact on the asylum system at large. Can you talk about that? Yeah. So, well, just to recap a little bit, CBP-1 is this application that asylum seekers can use to kind of like pre-vet themselves before they make an appointment to cross the border. You need certain requirements to, you know, you obviously need a phone, you need to have a certain amount of you know tech savviness to use the app. You need to identify a sponsor in the U.S. who you can connect with, and it lets you set up an appointment so that instead of you know hiking out through Hakumba, you can just show up to the port of entry and cross. There were issues with the app, really having to do with equity. You know, in the beginning part of the process, you have to, as you have to take a picture. Folks with dark skin tones were having a really hard time getting the app to recognize their face. Uh, there were also you know, a lot of people from more affluent countries and more affluent migrants, like Eastern Europeans, were getting the bulk of the appointments early on. Uh, but to the government's credit, they changed, you know, they've corrected some of the photo issues. They've given some priority to people who have been trying the longest to get the app. Um, so it's it's working for folks who can do it, but it, it, it takes a certain amount of privilege to use that, right? In Tijuana, the officials there told me the average wait time is four to five months to secure an appointment. So you have to be willing to wait four or five months in Tijuana or in Mexico to get an appointment. You have to have enough money to do that. You have to feel safe enough to do that. And if you can, then it, it's a 
safer way to get into the country. But if you can't, then you know you're going to be hiking out and putting your life at risk because you're so desperate, or you just don't want to wait that long. Yeah, there's uh, is it one? Th- I think it's one thousand four hundred fifty a day that they allow in under that app across the border. Yeah, in Tijuana, and I've been told it's four hundred. Uh, yeah, me too. And the the issue I have with it is, um, you know, it it doesn't identify the most vulnerable. It's mm-hmm. not, I don't. It doesn't intend to. It it's not to pretend to do that, but. Um, you know the the people who are who are most vulnerable in need of asylum are, are not necessarily going to get get the, it's like buying a concert ticket you just you're, you're you know everyone's trying to get in and and, yeah, and it's it way oversubscribed and you know you just have to be patient to get, patient to get it wait what do you say four four months uh, four to five months four to five average. months or or just say hell you know forget this I'm not waiting I'm going to cross in Hakumba and get released in two days yeah which if you're desperate kind of by definition you don't have four or five months to wait. Elliot, there have been some other recent changes on asylum. Can you talk a little bit about what you're, what you're finding there? I think what you might be referring to is um, something I was looking into this week, actually, a new asylum rule where it, it, it raises the, – the, there's an initial screening that, 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 was, that was introduced in 1996, and uh, it was the standard is pretty low. It's generally considered like 10 percent chance of success, and the asylum officer will, will clear that initial hurdle. You get a court date. The court date takes the court. You know, cases are taking like five to seven years to resolve. So, that's an incentive for people with weak cases. They know that, you know, hey, even I'll, I'll get past the credible fear interview because it's pretty easy. What I found is it's in many cases is very rarely even done. Um, so you just get a court date and you get five to seven years right off the bat, um, even if you have a weak case. So. Um, you know, th- there was this change to raise that that standard to make it more difficult to a more likely than not uh, standard that you're going to get asylum, that you'll need to do that to get past that initial hurdle. But it hasn't been applied. And I, I just, just look, the numbers, I, I won't get into them, but the the numbers are, they're, they're high. I mean, they are, they, they did 130,000 of these interviews on the border last year, which sounds like a lot, was double the previous years. But as I mentioned, 2 million illegal crossings. Uh, it, it, yeah, it just it just hasn't really had had much impact, and there was um, I, if this is what you're referring to, there was of course the big discussion in Washington. Uh, it failed. I don't no, know if you wanted to get but, into let's, that. Yeah, let's get into that. So, I think a lot of times when we've had you on before, the conversation inevitably at some point goes back to Washington D.C. and the state of the federal immigration system and the lack of movement for federal immigration reform. But earlier this month. There was some movement. A bipartisan group of senators released an immigration plan that was quickly shot down by Republicans in the House and and others. But I just wanted to get your thoughts on what it was like to see, you know, some movement at the federal level on this. And if there's anything you can take away, even if this effort did fail. Well, uh, (laughs) I have a bunch of takeaways from it, I, I guess. One was it's important to keep in mind that it was tied to funding for Ukraine and Israel, right? So it was kind of used as an extra bargaining chip, which kind of tells you it's not a standalone priority if it can be bargained with something else. The other thing you mentioned, that it was a bipartisan, and it, and it was. There, were, there was bipartisan agreement from it, but a lot of people on the left, I'm thinking progressives and really the, the immigrant advocate communities were very unhappy for it. They described it as... Uh, Democrats shifting right on immigration because they weren't really getting a lot of benefit from it, like expansions from for undocumented folks or, or, or increased access to the asylum process. It was very 
much giving the Republicans what they wanted and not getting a lot of what the Democrats wanted. And I think that's something I think the the Democratic Party is going to have to reconcile moving forward is where they want to be on immigration. Part of this plan, I think, was to end catch and release. I think it was also adding limits to your point of asylum and those arriving. Elliot, what's what are your thoughts on? Well, yeah, I have a lot of a lot of thoughts too. It was fascinating. I mean, just watching it like every day, and my colleagues were like door stopping these these uh, members of Congress for four months. And the result was, I guess, kind of predictable. I mean, it was dead yeah. on arrival, to use the the phrase of the House uh, Speaker. Uh, it died very, like almost within a day or two days, maybe. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it was an attempt to create a, a political center on the issue, uh, which is pretty admirable effort. <laughs> I mean, the issue is just so so polarizing, and and the deal in the end was blah, it was killed. Not just as Gustavo mentions, by with the progressives very upset, but just as, or maybe even more importantly, the the Republican, you know, uh, people on the right were, they didn't, it didn't go far enough. But, you know, basically what it did is it, it had some, you know, it was, it was a tough me- a bill, a tough agreement, uh, you know, in the sense that it created a border emergency power for the president. So if, if illegal crossings got above a certain level, asylum would effectively shut down. And it also um, created these like super fast screening uh, mechanisms where asylum officers, not immigration judges, would decide everything within, I believe it was six months instead of six years. And then they threw in some some sweeteners about, you know, I think visas and I can't remember what. But, you know, it was a complicated bill. But uh, well, the, but bi- the big one was, was the ambitious. president shutting down the border. Uh, Which like, now they say he might do anyway. There's some reporting that he might do that anyways uh, as an yeah. executive order. But I thought it was, you know, I'm not talking about the merits of it. I thought it was pretty well thought out. I mean, it, it did address the issues, whether you agree with with their answers or not. It was relevant to today. It addressed what is happening on the ground today, mm-hmm. which we haven't seen Congress do in ever. <laughs> you oh, know, at and least, they're getting at least... a lot of pressure. I mean, they're getting pressure from cities like New York, Chicago, which they've never gotten pressure for on this issue. So I think a lot of it was trying to, to win people over in those cities and just kind of try to restore at least the appearance of order along the border. Yeah, and the, and the politics are, like, fascinating, and I'm not – you know, my read is probably unsophisticated, probably off the mark. Well, uh, we don't cover politics. Yeah. But yeah. <laughs> because I was talking with some of my colleagues about this and they're saying, you know, Trump and Trump came out against it, which was really the death knell. And people said, well, he wanted to campaign on it. And, and he objected to that. He said, no, we just we just didn't. We thought it was a terrible bill. But now the Democrats, you know, Biden can say it, it was a winning issue for him because even if he, could, if he had signed it, he could say, I'm working with Republicans to address it. And if it failed, he could blame Republicans and say they're just using it for political gain or not serious. Mm-hmm. So I don't know how, you know, which what's going to resonate with voters. Well, and on the political note, I mean, there have been some recent polls that are pointing to immigration being pretty high on voters lists. I think a recent poll from the Center for American Political Studies at Harvard and Harris poll found that voters' top concern was immigration, even over things like inflation. Another recent poll from NPR, PBS, NewsHour, Marist, found immigration was like the third top issue for voters. With that, you know, rising to the level of importance for voters, do you think that could spur more future efforts on immigration reform? Possibly. I don't know. Yeah, Yeah. there's definitely interest in it. Yeah, there's there's. There's big, big, big interest. Yeah, you're, you're, you, we are the 
it's more among Republicans. You know, the the early voting states in uh, primary caucus states, Iowa, New Hampshire, showed immigration was the number one issue uh, ahead of the economy. Uh, I don't think it. My understanding, it's not quite as high among Democrats, but as Gustavo mentioned, it's you know all the the the, the large number of rivals in New York, Chicago, Denver. Uh, those mayors are speaking out constantly about it and how it's affecting their budgets. So yeah, I think it's become a definitely a, a bigger issue across the board. Do you think it has become a bigger issue here though? I mean, like as you mentioned, as we've talked before. San Diego, our region is somewhat of like a transit yeah. area, like they had head somewhere else. Do you get that sense? You're hearing more uh, locally? No, I don't get the sense. I mean, other than you know your Jim Desmonds or Bill Wells of the world, who are are have genuine takes of how the situation has been handled and the street drop offs, like that that that's valid to them. But outside of that, no, not in the way you hear in other countries. I do think it's. Interesting that immigration gets talked about separate from the economy because the two are very similar, especially if you look at some other aspects of immigration. If you look at labor shortage, uh, there's been communication about increasing or, or reforming uh, labor uh, work visa laws to, to help out with that. There's a lot of um, research into the amount of money that immigrants con- contribute to the country and don't take out because they don't qualify for a lot of social services. So I think... Or just me personally, that those are issues I kind of want to explore more linking or the relationship between immigration and the economy, because I think that could be a really good way to educate people about sort of what's what's going on. Yeah, we're going we're gonna to want to do a lot more reporting on that, too, because I mean, the reason asylum has, has taken off is because it's pretty much the only way to get in. Mm-hmm. So but on the politics point, like the Republicans are the ones that are really running with immigration, uh, Trump. Democrats, I think, are have been very uncomfortable with it, and and and, and a lot of in, you know divisions between progressives and and others in the party. And you know, you look at Biden, who himself has you know really really struggled with the issue. He's he's called it a crisis. Uh, he called it a crisis. And, you know, we we use the the crisis the c word, and 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 Mayorkas has start uh, <laughs> Homeland Security started to use the word crisis finally after being pressed on it by Republicans year after year. So they're um, I, I mean they're really f- struggling with it and trying to trying to find a way to make it work for them, or at least not at least not be a you know a devastating uh, strike against them. Yeah, they're, like they're on the back foot of the like they're on the defensive. On the issue, and they don't really have a a retort for what the Republicans are saying, which just really puts them in a really weak position um, just based on the um, politics of it. Now, you both have covered immigration in the San Diego Tijuana region for for several years. Um, You know, a lot of experience here. Can you talk about the significance of the last few years particularly? I mean, we've talked about, you mentioned Title 42, which we've talked about with both of you on this program before. I don't know, reflecting back over, say, the last few years of this period of, of immigration and increased migration, what are your thoughts on, you know, the last few years on this era? I'm honestly surprised just by how long it's been sustained. You know, I'll admit I was when, like, I thought coming out of the pandemic, we'd see things go back to pre-pandemic levels and things, you know, quote unquote, go back to normal. Um, even when Title 42 was lifted, I thought there would be a big increase and then it would steadily go back down to, to normal levels. But I haven't seen that. I, I'm really surprised by how long this increased number has been sustained and there doesn't seem to be an end to it. And it feels like we're just in a situation of 
a constant like crisis or just ready, like all hands on deck. It's like one emergency after another after another, and there's no real time to breathe. Mm. Elliot? Yeah, no, I've just been constantly surprised. And I think I think last time I was on the program, you asked what are your predictions for the coming year. And I said, I, I'm not going to touch that one because it, <laughs> it's just always, I mean, I didn't see Hakumba coming. I didn't see mm. that, you know, um, I didn't see people from China coming for thousands a month crossing in, in San Diego. Uh, you know, it's just very difficult to predict what what's next. But the forces are pretty strong. I mean, I don't know if... You know, Trump, if he wins, would try to come in and end a lot of this sort of carrot and stick approach that Biden has tried with CBP-1 and paroling people in and then at the same time trying to crack down at people who cross illegally. Uh, he would he would try to pretty much shut it down, I think, to the extent he could shut down asylum. I don't know if that's even – I don't think it's possible. Um, well, it maybe he down, doesn't. I mean, it would shut down people from entering the country, but it wouldn't stop migrants from leaving yeah, their the, home the and forces, trying. Especially you look at like Venezuela, which is a huge issue that merits its own discussion because that's – I mean, they, they were the number one nationality in September mm-hmm. crossing the border. Seven million people – I think it's like a fifth of the country or something – have left Gosh. over 10 years. So – uh, and there's no hope, you know, there's no hope of turning the corner there right now. So, um, yeah, the, the, the forces pushing people there are very, very, very strong. And then, of course, always the smartphone and people, technology, mm-hmm. the ease of getting around. It makes it makes me think that this will this will continue. But I don't I wouldn't venture to say where, how, you know, and what what how much, you know, I will say I, I think some cities are getting more comfortable with it or some organizations at least I went to the Jewish family shelter services and they uh-huh. they run a really good operation they've yeah. they're coming at to almost 200,000 people that they've they've served and gone through their process and now they have it figured out so there are blueprints out there maybe too few and far between right now but people are figuring it out and mm-hmm. I think cities like New York and Chicago the longer they're confronted with these problems the the more likely it is that they find a way to to deal with them but it's going to take everybody's effort, F- funding from the federal, state, local governments, philanthropy, and just people willing to do the work. Well, we have plenty to talk about going forward in the months ahead. I want to thank you both for being here. I've been speaking with Gustavo Solis, KPBS investigative border reporter, and Elliot Spaggett, San Diego correspondent and immigration team lead with the Associated Press. Thank you both for being here. Thank you. Yeah, thanks. When we come back, we catch up on the top stories from the week with KPBS web producer, Laura McCaffrey. Stay tuned. Roundtable is back in less than two minutes. You're listening to KPBS Roundtable. I'm Andrew Bracken. It's time now to check in on some other top stories from the week, and joining me to do that is KPBS web producer, Laura McCaffrey. Hey, Laura. Hey, Andrew. How's it going? Pretty good. How are you doing? Good. So what are some of the top stories you've been following this week? So pocketbook issues are always a big popular topic with our readers. Uh, So the digital team, we have all our digital widgets that tell us, like, what stories are popular on the website. It's usually pocketbook issues, cost of living. Um, So the big news this week was student loans. So um, the first batch of people that were enrolled in the Biden administration's save plan, they got their student loan balances wiped. 
And um, on Wednesday, the Federal Education Department zeroed out loan balances for almost 153,000 borrowers. Um, and this SAVE program was started last summer. And the president has gotten some pushback on these efforts, if you recall, from Republican lawmakers. What's going on there? Yeah. So Republican lawmakers, they've tried to stop the SAVE plan. They've argued that it's outside of the administration's authority. And they criticize the president for campaigning for votes with this policy. Um, and he pretty much has been. He's doing a he's done a three day swing in California campaigning. Um, and that was one of his talking points is his administration's uh, student loan forgiveness efforts. Well, and I guess, you know, as we just talked about earlier in the show, it is a presidential election year and kind of mm-hmm. a lot of a lot of uh these stories involving leaders, national leaders that are, have elections, you kind of have to look at it through that lens, right? Yeah, that's right. Well, the latest on the campaign campaign front is in the Chula Vista City Council race. So one of the candidates, uh, the incumbent um, representing District 4, Andrea Cardenas, she resigned this week. Both she and her brother, Jesus, are facing criminal charges of fraud, grand theft auto, money laundering, and she was running for re-election. Right. And this this scandal has been building over the past few months, but now she finally ultimately resigned that position. So what, what happens to her seat now? Do we know? So um, from what I understand, they're looking for um, an interim position, but her name is still on the ballot. Ballots have gone out. And um, it's a little bit unclear what's going to happen if she gets voted back in, I guess. And, you know, last time we had you on, we talked about the KPBS Voter Hub. And obviously, you know, we're all kind of focused on this election that's coming up. I think it ends on March 5th. Mm-hmm. Any other election news? Yeah, the the latest addition to the Voter Hub is our annual, well, not annual. Every time we have an election, we have a candidate quiz. and Readers can take the quiz, answer, well, this year it's four yes or no questions. It's on issues from like housing, um, the stormwater system, how to fund that overhaul. Um, And we ask local candidates the same things. So you can go in into this interactive. And once you're done answering all the questions, you can look at how the candidates responded. And it'll, um, it'll tell you which candidates responded similarly to you. To be honest, like for me as a voter, it was pretty enlightening on how voters like stand with my personal beliefs. Yeah. I mean, I, I remember doing this quiz at least one other election. And it is just helpful. Any way you can kind of get more information and tie it into your own beliefs, I think is great. So um, that's something that I'll be looking at doing before I send my ballot in, which is sitting like on my desk right now as we speak. Yeah, I think mine's under a pile of papers, but I'll get to it. <laughs> I swear. So I still think, so what are we talking? It's two weeks left? Oh, yeah. March 5th. Yeah, it's coming up, coming um, in hot. And, you know, another story, you know, we're drying off now from our latest atmospheric river. A lot of, you know, attention is still on the impacts from the floods of that January 22nd storm. What's the latest there? Yeah, so um, actually KPBS did a community event 
um, with some South Bay leaders um, at the San Ysidro Public Library. Um, That was on Tuesday night. And so we gathered them to talk about, like, what's top of mind as the election comes nearer. And then what dominated the conversation, actually, was flood recovery and the response to the flood. And as it relates to the election, people had a lot to say about the flood recovery. But as it relates to the election, flood victims, voting is going to be even harder for them this year. There's a lot of barriers to entry when it comes to voting. There's, you know... Not having the time, um, the language barriers, people, you know, not understanding like how to vote or how to register to vote. Um, Getting to the voting center. Like a lot of people have lost transportation. If you remember, a lot of people lost their cars in the floods. Mm -hmm. Some ballots have got straight up like soaked. (laughs) And you can get replacement ballots. We actually have a good article about that at kpbs.org. But some people just might not know what to do if their ballot's totally ruined. So there's all these existing barriers to entry, and the flood has just compounded these issues because people have a lot more, they have a lot more to worry about. You know, they have property damage, looking for a place to live, work issues. So it's it's just made things like elections much more complicated. And kind of adding to that, I mean, now... We've talked about this some on Midday Edition. Others in KPBS have been reporting on it. Sort of this new phase of flood recovery as some federal money might be coming in and FEMA is arriving. And just to navigate that can be pretty complicated. Have we seen federal assistance in San Diego yet? Has that help arrived? So Biden just okayed uh, FEMA money for people impacted by the January storm. And this money can be used for things like temporary housing, home repairs, low-cost loans for uninsured property losses, which there's quite a bit of that um, because not everybody has flood insurance or thinks about that in San Diego. And then I guess there's other programs to help people or business owners. So to qualify for that assistance, you have to contact FEMA. The number is 1-800-621-FEMA, or you can use the FEMA app and apply for your assistance there. It's definitely going to be a long process there as, you know, people continue to try to repair their homes or get back on their feet. Yeah, this problem is going to last for a long time, the recovery efforts, but we'll be here to tell you all about it. So I have a couple I just wanted to throw your way here. One thing I was reading was the San Diego Union-Tribune's Philip Molnar he had a story on just the amount of like new apartments opening in San Diego. And I don't know if you felt this, but I've definitely been seeing a lot of bigger structures being built over the past, say, several months, I don't know, six months or so, like in my neighborhood. I think he says, you know, there are 50 new complexes being built around the county. The majority of them are in downtown San Diego, but there are examples elsewhere in the county as well. I saw another report that's saying, you know, condos, townhomes, those sales rose in January. But it remains to be seen, you know, with these new, you know, apartment complexes, will it have an impact on this housing crisis and the price of housing? Because again, you know, I have other friends like looking for a new place and it is not cheap and not easy. Yeah, um, I'm in very beginning stages of possibly buying property and it is very complicated and a little disheartening. <laughs> um, it's it's interesting that condos and townhome sales are going up because 
those are like the cheaper options, but there's all those HOA fees, you know. Right. Yeah. So, um, but but I guess in yeah. contrast, I mean, the median price for a single family home is nearing that million dollar mark. I think it's it nine hundred eighty thousand. So yeah. obviously, you know, I think building these, you know, more townhomes, condos, you know, larger apartment buildings, we are seeing more of that. And obviously the region needs more housing. Yep. The supply is very low. I forget what the numbers were, but um, there's, I think, only like 2,000, 3,000 homes like on the MLS right now. So there's not many available and there's a lot of people here. So. So finishing up on a brighter note. It sounds like giant pandas may return to San Diego Zoo, even potentially as soon as this year. Yes. Arriving as soon as the end of this summer, if all goes well, with whatever documents, permits, panda passports are gotten in order. So that's very exciting. Also, there's sort of this higher level with the panda diplomacy, what they call. Mm-hmm. We had a segment on this on Midday Edition several months ago, but it was really interesting to see how you could kind of track the relationship of the United States and China to the number of pandas in the U.S. And so yeah. China has been taking back over the last several years, have been taking back pandas. You know, the pandas that were here left in 2019. Mm-hmm. I think um, other zoos around the country also sent their pandas back. I think the last ones were in Washington, D.C., but yeah. now th- there might be more coming back. So maybe that maybe that points to increased cooperation between the two countries, too. Yeah, I guess so. Panda diplomacy. Um, yeah, it's a real term. I didn't really yeah. know before I, we did that midday segment. But So these two pandas, the ones they might send, they might be descendants of past San Diego Zoo pandas. By Yoon and Gao Gao, if you're familiar. Sounds familiar. I mean, I've definitely seen the pandas there. Yeah. It's like mm-hmm. when you have kids, I mean, that's like usually the first stop when they were here. Oh, yeah. They, I haven't seen the pandas like too often because there's usually a line. But right. I'll go to the red pandas or is that what they're called? The ones yes. that look like cats? But yeah. I think that's great news. I mean, I think, you know, it's just a symbol of this relationship, but it's something we really associate with the San Diego Zoo and are kind of like proud of it. Mm-hmm. It'll be nice to, you know, if that can come together that quickly too. This is this is going to be a great summer, let me tell you. <laughs> <laughs> Laura McCaffrey, thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having me. That's our show for this week. Thanks so much for being here. We'd love to hear from you. You can email us at roundtable at kpbs.org or leave us a message at 619-452-0228. You can always listen to our show as a podcast. KPBS Roundtable airs on KPBS-FM at noon on Fridays, again Sundays at 6 a.m. Roundtable's technical producers are Brandon Trufa and Ben Redlosk. This show was produced by Laura McCaffrey, and Brooke Ruth is Roundtable's senior producer. I'm Andrew Bracken. Thanks so much for listening. Have a great weekend.